to go back to the rock bottom phrase, I think that that's kind of a misnomer and it does a little bit of damage, honestly, because Mm -hmm. I've had so many people come to me and describe their family member or their friend or whoever and say, you know, so-and-so he, he or she, they're just having a really bad go at it. They're struggling with alcohol. I think, you know, I think they just need to hit rock bottom or we need to wait until they hit rock bottom. I don't think they've hit rock bottom yet. I don't think they're going to change. And I think that that does damage and that it, it, people think that you have to get to this really, really low point to stop. This is the nature untold podcast. And I'm your host, Emily Holland. This podcast is about all kinds of sobriety, addiction, recovery, as they intersect with the outdoor community and industry. Welcome to the show. Oftentimes, I feel like outdoor brands aren't even speaking to me. They're speaking to this upper echelon of outdoor elite athletes that I could never reach. That's why I love working with UST Gear as a sponsor of Nature Untold, because they want to be the opposite. UST is bright and fun and wants to make high quality gear for anyone who wants to get outdoors and into its healing powers. They aim to speak for the outdoor enthusiast, not some ideal of elite athleticism in the mountains. Check them out at ustgear.com or on Instagram at ustgear. Now, on to the show. Hello, all you beautiful people, and welcome back to the Nature Untold podcast. So before we get into the actual episode today, I do want to just let you know about a community fundraiser we're doing for the Loveland Foundation. So it is Black Heritage Month, and in honor of that, we are raising money for the Loveland Foundation. This organization provides therapy for Black girls and women. So if you want to donate, you can send over a Venmo to me, Emily Holland 14 The reason I'm using Venmo is so that we can cut out any sort of middleman percentages that get taken out when you use those sorts of platforms. So we'll just give all of the money directly to the Loveland Foundation. So we're at about 880 right now, and I'd love for us to get to 1000 and then I'll add that 250 on to that as well. So Definitely make sure you donate if you can. And in the donation, if you include your email or your Instagram handle or something like that, something I can contact you through, you will be entered into a raffle to win UST gear. That's right. Raffle, UST gear. You can win that stuff. Doesn't matter how much you donate you'll be entered. So go ahead and do that. And thank you so much for your support. I'm glad that we're pulling this together as a community. Now let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Nature Untold podcast. I'm your host, Emily Holland. And today on the show, we have John Holdmeyer. John is a brand manager for American Outdoor Brands Corporation. Wow, I almost didn't get through that. He is awesome. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. A couple things to note. You know, we're all learning here, right? And by all of us, I mean me about how to run a podcast. And with that, I got so excited to talk to John that I 
didn't turn my mic on. So my vocals on this are a little bit echoey. Sorry, I know I should know better, but I'm learning. So I hope you can bear with me. On this episode, we talk a lot about showing examples of what having a full, happy life in sober living can look like. The fact that no one really cares what you're doing John talks about his perspective on rock bottom and staying vigilant and really what water means to John. So more on that in the actual episode. Another treat you'll have on this particular episode is hearing me not understand anything about water sports. So that is just going to be a continuous theme throughout this podcast. So anyways, I hope you all enjoy our episode with John Holdmeyer. to the show. Today we have John Holdmeyer on the show. John, welcome to Nature Untold. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's really good to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot kind of right away because that's what an interview is really. And I want you to tell the people um, of the Nature Untold podcast something they might not know about living in Missouri that's pretty rad. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is right on the spot. Uh, I would say most people don't know a, the most common thing I get is most people go, where's Missouri (laughs) a lot of times. So, uh, a lot of people don't know where it is, but I would say as far as, especially like specifically the outdoors, a lot of people don't know the amount of activities you can do uh southern missouri has a lot of really cool stuff we have a lot of kind of hills and and streams and spring fed streams um so i would say that people kind of don't really know uh the amount that that you can do outside here nice that's kind of what i was hoping you would say because there is an underrepresentation of like the midwest and and sometimes the south for outdoor sports and activities yeah yeah i think that you know To be fair, there is a lot of, there is a lot of nothingness here as as well, as far as, as far as like just kind of flat farmland type stuff. But, uh, there are some real hidden gems and especially the further South you go, you get down to like the Ozarks, uh, like Southern Missouri, Northern Arkansas, that whole area, it kind of starts to look and feel a little bit like the, like a miniature version of the Smokies. Mm. and kind of all the same or similar activities you can do out there you can you can find here nice okay so obviously i'm asking you that because you live in missouri you live in columbia right correct yep right in the middle of the state so did you grow up in missouri as well or where did you grow up yeah yeah i grew up uh just outside of st louis um small town called washington missouri and uh yeah i grew up doing kind of the activities that i was talking about you know growing up floating float trips camping a lot of gravel bar camping so we have really great spring fed a lot of we have a couple nationally scenic uh protected rivers in southern missouri and so i spent a lot of time with the family with my dad with my parents my brother my sister overnight float trip kind of stuff a lot of fly fishing those sorts of activities so nice would you say gravel bark camping <laughs> gravel bar gravel bar camping okay. describe yes. please <laughs> so that, that's not a national term i, I thought that was I it probably that was is but you know what in this podcast we're all learning together so <laughs> yeah no that, that that's fair uh yeah so like a gravel bar you know like on the inside of a river bend where the oh. gravel piles up yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so like 
camping on the gravel bar, gravel bar camping. Okay. All right. Good to know. You're going to teach me a lot about like water-esque sports during this, this time today. (laughs) I'm Um, happy to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so um, getting kind of straight to it, um, the reason we're chatting today is you are over six years sober, right? Is that is that where your date is at right now? Yeah, so uh, September of 2014. So six years and a month, or I'm not great at time, six years and a little <laughs> over a month. Uh, but yeah, yeah, over six years. It's It's, it's been awesome. Yeah. So just to sort of level set, everyone... I think has different definitions that mean sober for them. So for you, what is sobriety or recovery? Like, what does that actually mean for you? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. For me, it's, it's no substances, no mind altering substances, I guess, unless you want to count caffeine. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm a, a cold brew fiend. So I would say, yeah, uh, six years ago, I decided that I, I really needed to stop drinking. I had, I had a serious problem with drinking and So since then I've been, I've been substance free and it's been by far the best thing that, that I've been able to do for myself in life. So, yeah. And when we talked before, you know, off the recording, we talked a little bit about how, when you were young, you were quote unquote, a good kid, right? Listening to your parents, um, not breaking any rules, doing well in school. Right. And your parents kind of warned you about, um, some level of, alcohol or substance abuse disorders within the family. So can you talk a little bit about that warning and and how that made you feel at the time when you were, when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of known or, or made known to me growing up, you know, both my parents, neither one of them have an issue with alcohol or anything, but there, there was history, you know, further back in the family. And so that was something that was, that was, told to me at a young age. And I think I grew up, grew up a little bit hesitant and a little scared, uh, Mm. and, and cautious around drinking. And so I was, I was a pretty well-behaved child. Uh, I didn't drink all through high school. I didn't, I didn't do anything out of, you know, reason. I was, I was pretty well-behaved. And then it it really kind of started whenever I went to uh, college. So I think, you know, for a lot of people who have uh, substance abuse issues or who struggle with alcohol uh, specifically, you hear a lot of stories, especially if you go to any type of recovery program or AA or anything like that. You hear a lot of stories of people who started when they were 12 or 13 or whatever. And and that's kind of the, the norm that people expect. I think there's also a group of us who kind of, you know, waited until until college or whatever, and then just went just head first right into it. And that was kind of my, that was kind of my experience with it. So in, in going to college and I mean, that, that's kind of a trajectory a lot of the time, right? So you, you see college students who a lot of them maybe didn't have experience with alcohol in high school or have any like good representation of what healthy drinking, if we can call it that uh, looks like. And then you're like, I'm free and I can do whatever I want. No parents, no rules. And so there's sort of like this weird time period in which you're still not an adult, but you're trying to make like adult decisions and a lot of time making really poor ones. (laughs) So what was it about the college environment? Do you think that you're like, all right, it's go time. Now is when I start to to drink. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
I think it's kind of across a lot of uh, areas in life. So it's hard for me to say if it specifically was something about the college experience or if it's just a bigger societal question in Mm. that drinking, like when I got to school and I was going to be social and going to parties and going to do these things, you were the odd one out you know, or at least that's what it felt like, especially at the time. And especially when you're not at a, at a maturity level to be able to process a lot of that stuff. (laughs) You feel like you're going to be the odd one out if you're not drinking. It's so normalized. And I think college is like a hyper uh, elevated version of society in that regard, but it's, it's across a lot of spectrums of life where it, it seems to be if you just glance at media or you glance at commercials or you glance at anything, it seems to be that everybody's drinking and having a good time. And so I think that was kind of just the the environment that I walked into. And I was I was ready to kind of cut loose and and have a good time and lower those inhibitions. I mean everybody everybody I've ever met or talked to in life struggles with some sort of inner thing that makes it difficult to socialize or makes it difficult to, to relax or makes it difficult to deal with anxiety or stress or whatever it is. And so having this newfound, like what I thought was an, a tool to kind of help with some of that stuff seemed really appealing right off the bat. Not that we can solve this issue, but what do you think would be helpful for students going to college and, and not being put into these scenarios? Because I don't think it's really changed much since we've been at school <laughs> um, yeah, from, yeah. from the outside looking in, knowing no one really in college right at this moment. But you know, from what I see on the internet, <laughs> the I don't interwebs. think it's changed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't, I haven't seen much change in the, the party culture in the, you know, shaming of non drinkers, uh, not people who don't do drugs. Like, what do you think would be helpful for, for young people going to college to know about before they go? Maybe it's even before then. It, like we talked about the social aspect overall in society, but is there anything you can think of that would be helpful for those kids going to school that can help them maybe make decisions that feel more in tune with what they're actually wanting versus like pressure? Yeah, I think I think that's a really big question. I think it's a really that's good question. I asked you, John, because I yeah, think you yeah. can solve it right here and yeah. right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let, let's let's solve let's solve it all. I, I'm down. Uh, honestly, I think that the real struggle with trying to convince somebody or teach somebody or however you want to phrase it, that, that there's another way that, that drinking isn't, doesn't have to be your norm. That's a really hard thing to accomplish if the person isn't ready to receive the message. And so it's really hard to convince you know, 18 year olds that, that drinking might not be what they're actually looking for if they're not going to be receptive to, to a message like that. And I think the only thing you can do for, for people who aren't ready or willing or seeking change necessarily is just continually show examples of how it's possible to do it without drinking and how it's possible to live a really, really fulfilled, happy life without drinking. And the more examples that people see, especially young people or whoever it is, the more examples of that and audible, like out loud, out there examples of it that are visible. I think that's probably the best tool 
but that's that's also hard hard to accomplish and it's i think i think one of the really cool things that i've that i've seen in the past several years and you know i think i think we talked about this a little bit when we talked before but especially within the outdoor industry is that there's this growing na movement you know mm-hmm. i think it's at its beginning still but it's really cool to see and i think you know a lot of a lot of people look to the outdoor industry as oh how cool is how cool is the outdoor you know lifestyle and people really admire that and i think that being able to see some of these really cool na things pop up and become popular would be a good way to kind of get that message to a, you know any crowd but specifically a younger crowd that look all these people are going and doing this cool stuff and they're drinking NA beer while they do it, or they're, mm-hmm. they're drinking, you know, seltzer or whatever it is, you know, hop water or, or whatever. <laughs> I think that all those, all those brands, all those companies and, and parts of the NA movement are, are going to be, it's going to be really cool to see how that, how that grows. How do you, do you utilize NA drinks right now as part of just your daily life? Or is that not something that you're that into for yourself personally? Yeah, I think. Honestly, that's been a really big part of of kind of my recovery process is I wouldn't say specifically NA like NA beer or NA drinks, uh, especially at the beginning. I didn't drink. I stayed as far away as I could. I didn't drink kombucha. I didn't drink NA mm. beer or, or anything for the first probably three to four years of my sobriety. And now I, I do. I love kombucha. I love NA beer. But Initially, right off the bat, for me, my problem was was not a small a small problem. It was not like, uh, uh, hey, maybe I should think about stopping. It was a I need to stop kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, being able to find sparkling water, tea, all sorts of different drinks, especially early on, that I could I could habitually just have those with me everywhere. That made a huge difference up front. And then as I've grown and felt more and more secure in my sobriety, you know, I have I have said, yeah, I think I'm at a good enough place that I can try this NA beer. And that's been a really good experience because some of them are really, really awesome. If you're if you're at a place where you want to try that. Yeah. So you're a LaCroix boy is what you're saying. <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of that is, um, totally agree with what you're saying and, and wonder how you feel about this too. Um, whether we like it or not, a big part of being a part of a social group, social gathering, when we used to be able to do those is just having a drink in your hand. And I think there's a, there's two parts of that. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about this too, is like the first part is like, just feeling like you're part of the group, minimizing amount of questions that maybe come at you that might be triggering if, you know, if, the, if you're not as like secure in your sobriety or whatever that means to you. But then the other part of it is just like the normalcy. So you're changing the substance, but you're used to having a drink in your hand in a place. And without it, you feel like naked almost. What do you, what do you make of, of that? Do you agree? Do you think it's something else? Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. I think it's a habitual, like almost like a, a tick, like a, a muscle memory kind of thing, for sure. Those habits that you form are really, really strong. Any habit you can form, I mean, it's really hard to break a habit. So to be able to aid that by having something else is is a big 
help. And I think that it also does what you're talking about with cutting down on the amount of questions you get. That was a big thing. I know that's a huge thing for a lot of people as they try to stop is, well, aren't people going to ask people are going to make a big deal about it. What do I say? What, like, I remember practicing what I was going to say to people when I would go somewhere uh, and being so nervous about, you know, they're going to, they're going to be able to tell, they're going to know that I have a problem. They're going to know all these things and going through all of that in my mind, it's easy for me to look back at that now and go, Oh, I feel like that was a little, like that was so over the top in reality. Nobody, nobody cared. I mean, very (laughs) few people cared what I was doing, but, but that's like an ego thing. Like you, you feel all these things because you think that everybody's looking at you. And in reality, most people aren't going to say anything. And a lot of times not always, and it's not meant to be like a judgmental statement, but a lot of times when people do have a lot of questions for you, it's because they're asking them about, you know, their own concerns about their situation. A lot of the time, I I remember doing that to people when they weren't drinking, when I was drinking, being blown away and not being able to comprehend, what do you mean you're not drinking? Like what, why? Like (laughs) I I, I couldn't comprehend it when I was drinking. And I, I remember specific instances of, of like, just, I would not leave it alone. And I didn't know it at the time that I was struggling. Like it was before I realized I had a problem, but looking back at it, I'm like, Oh, that's why I was so confused by by that statement that that person made. Yeah, definitely. Well, what was your original, you know, rehearsed statement that you would say when you, when people either asked or noticed, or maybe even Mm -hmm. didn't, and you offered it up either way. I used to uh, tell people that I was allergic I was allergic to alcohol. That was one oh, of my first wow. ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of a, a common one that people talk about a lot in like AA or in a lot of the recovery programs is like, you know, you can say you're allergic because it's kind of true. You kind of are, or you can say, man, I can't remember any of the other ones. I do remember that specifically though, <laughs> t- telling people that I was allergic to alcohol. Yeah. And I think like those questions, I'd love to hear how you deal with them now? Like if people ask you questions or, or come to you with interest and what your approach is and trying to be like, like you talked about, like you're, you're basically an example, right. Of, of what other people might want, you know, living a full life, having joy in your life, not doom and gloom only going through recovery. So now when people come to you, ask questions, you know, what, how do you usually try to support them in a way that's not preachy, (laughs) but that is, is helpful. Honestly, I think that's the hardest, that's the hardest thing is it, when you tell somebody that you don't drink or you're in a social, social situation where you're not drinking and people are curious or, or ask the question, it's really hard to answer without it coming across as preachy or judgmental. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's something that's, that's something that I still I don't want to say struggle with, but I still, I still encounter that, you know, all the time, whenever I'm, well, less, less so now, uh, with, <laughs> with the social, uh, situations the way they are, but it's still something that's tough to walk that line of letting people know and being vocal about the fact that, Oh no, no, thank you. I'm not, I usually start with, Oh no, I'm not drinking or I don't, I, you know, I, no, thank you. And, and kind of like turning down offers. If somebody really pushes it, I'll just be like, Hey, you know, I don't actually, I don't drink, you know, I appreciate mm-hmm. it though. And just try to be as nice about it as possible, but it's hard to not, uh, come across as better than, or or preachy or something like that. Because in in reality, you know, it's, that's the furthest thing from the truth. I don't feel like I'm better than anybody for what I've been able to do. I feel really grateful for, for what 
I have in my life without drinking. But it, I think there are a lot of people who can drink healthily and and not have a problem with it. And I don't think that it's it's uh, necessarily anything that's better about me that I don't per se. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's tough. It's tough to to you know hold those two things. I think it, it would probably be similar to people who do something, and this might not be correct, but you're, I think I remember you saying you're, you're vegan, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's probably similar to like, you know, having that conversation and trying to have that not come across as, I think you can just, you can stick to your reasons for doing something and make it about why you are that way Mm -hmm. and make it about yourself and not put it on somebody else and, and make them feel like they should feel a type of way, I guess. Yeah. I've heard all kinds of kind of in these conversations that we're having all kinds of ways that people respond to other people when they offer them drinks, you know, some, some kind of negative things that people have said to them that could be really triggering, uh, like, Oh, you're not fun anymore or something like that, you know, but for the most part, like you said, people never care as much about what you're doing as you think they do. Um, in in the best way possible. Like, of course your, your loved ones care about you and they want you to do well, but I mean, just people that you encounter randomly. Good reminder. That's a, that's a, that's one of the most freeing things that this whole experience has taught me. And like, whenever you're in, or whenever I was in the, the like real, real bad parts of my, my use, every single thing was about me, you know, And, and your ego is just unchecked and out of control. Mm -hmm. And so the best part about getting sober has been realizing how little people actually are watching me or care about me. Of course, my family, people in my life care about me, but it's not like people walking down the street are looking at you and and thinking about you whatsoever. And that's so freeing whenever you get to the point where you're like, okay, none of these people actually like, it doesn't matter if I, if I do this or I do that. It's, it's, it's really freeing. Yeah. Um, so kind of taking a step back in the trajectory of like going to college and then a little bit down the line realizing, okay, I, this needs to stop. So in between that, I think you had mentioned you were working as a rafting guide during the summers. Is that right? Yep. Signing up for that kind of job. What's the environment like? How does that play into the journey of, you know, drinking, becoming a really steady staple in your life? Yeah. 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 I went out when I was, I guess it was probably, uh, I think it was my freshman year, uh, summer at school, uh, went out to North Carolina and I was a raft guide out there for several years and taught whitewater kayaking. Uh, and it was one of the best experiences still to this day, one of the best experiences of my life. I learned so much doing that. And I met some lifelong friends that I keep in touch with now, you know, several of whom also don't drink anymore. And and there were looking back at it as I went into the raft guide life and, and kind of doing that thing. It seemed like everybody was partying and everybody was drinking and everybody's, you know, doing that, especially in the staff housing, like my first year, two years out there, that's what's noticeable and loud and obvious. Looking back at it now, I feel like there were probably a lot of other people there who didn't drink, uh, or a lot of people there who didn't drink that I just didn't notice. And Mm -hmm. and I wasn't seeking that out, but that definitely played into what I was looking for, the loud, uh, drinking, uh, hanging out and partying part of, part of the job. So, uh. so then from there, what comes next? So you go back to school and you're still doing a lot of like day drinking, right? I think we talked about that became a big thing and man, 
Day drinking is so popular. <laughs> it's like scarily popular. Um, yeah. so normalized. Uh, it's a little bit unfortunate how normalized it is, obviously. But, uh, so what comes next after you, you know, have this kind of life changing to your point experience, but it's also kind of wrapped up in some of the, the partying that you were already doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would actually, I kind of, uh, would bounce back and forth for several years where I worked at an outdoor store in Columbia, uh, mm-hmm. Alpine shop. And it's an awesome little, you know, mom and pop, uh, outdoor gear shop. And so I had worked there for a while. That was my first job. I think I was like 16 or 17 when I started there. And so what I would do is I would leave and I would go raft guide and teach kayaking and stuff in the summer and then come back and go to school and work at the shop in the winter. As I came back and as I kept trying to get through school, the situation continually just got worse and worse and worse. And so school was a real struggle for me. I always struggle with things that I'm not interested in or involved uh, with. So some of the like gen ed classes, I would, Mm. you know, I just, I had a lot of issues with things I didn't understand why I needed to learn. If I'm like interested what? in it, like what? <laughs> math, anything yeah. math related, college algebra, you like, and I use math now pretty frequently at my, at my job. So yeah. I should, I should have embraced it, but I didn't at the time, but yeah, it, it you know, the math stuff, um, Anything that was related to like, I took a lot of psychology classes. I switched majors multiple times, um, did a lot of uh, philosophy classes, psych classes, history classes, writing, all that stuff was always like really easy for me. And I did really well in those. Anything that wasn't those was, was a struggle. Mm. And so school kind of got out of hand for me. I tried several times. I would, you know, take a break and go back and take a break and go back. And one winter I stayed out in North Carolina the whole winter and, and took a break. I tried to go back to that several times, but the drinking just kept progressing and getting worse and worse and worse. And that compounded uh, just making the school and and everything else in life kind of pile up and get worse and worse until, yeah, I was, I was drinking every night of the week and during the day. So when it was really like closer to the end of how bad it got, it was, it was absolutely every day uh, mm-hmm. that I was drinking. Yeah. It got, I would say uh, up until I was what 20, 27 or so 28 it just kind of progressively from from 18 to 28 those 10 years there just was like a a pretty quick progression uh or or degression or whatever digression whatever you want to it went downhill fast for me but i'm also really thankful because you know there are so many people that it goes bad it goes badly quickly for a lot of people and they never get better. They know they just live the rest of their lives doing that. And that's always a thought in my head that I'm just really grateful that it was that amount of time. And then another thing that I always think of in recovery, and this is kind of like pounded into your head. If you go to any like AA or any of the more like old school, traditional recovery programs, you know, you're, you're always, you always have to stay vigilant because it's not something that goes away and you could you could relapse, you could have, you could have it be an issue in your life again at any point. So you have to completely like always keep that perspective and and be mindful of that. Um, so I say that, you know, I was, I'm really grateful for that time that, that it was only that long. And I'm really grateful for the sober time that I have, but it's not anything that I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, that's over and done with. It's <laughs> something that I, that I keep in my mind all the time and I stay conscious of. And yeah. so I think that's an important, an important part of it. Yeah. You said before that you, I think you said you had a high rock bottom. 
I'm, I'm quoting you. No one can see that I'm quoting you, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is the case for a lot of people too, right? You like, everything looks fine on the outside. You know, you have a job, things should be great, but they're not. And so can you talk about that a little bit? And maybe the, if there was a moment or maybe a series of like micro moments that led you to then be like, okay, I can't anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I appreciate that you used your quotes for the for the <laughs> rock bottom part, because I do think so, you know, other than several people really close to me in my life who knew that I had a problem, most people would never have known that I had a problem. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to still be able to pull things off for some people, you know, some people, it just goes terribly, and it's obvious. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people who have severe drinking problems who you would never know, and it doesn't discriminate. It's it, it, it can be anybody uh, that is, you know, quote, unquote, pulling it off. And, and it feels like they're everything's going great. And because they have, they have the house, they have the family, they have the cars, they have the whatever kind of metric they think they, yeah. you know, make somebody successful because they have all that going on that they can't have a problem then. Right. And so I didn't have all of that stuff, but I did have, you know, I was getting to a place in life where I had a lot of things starting to go the right direction for me. Mm -hmm. And I got my first job beyond kind of the retail raft guide lifestyle that I had been living. My first real I quote unquote real job, I guess, but I have, <laughs> we'll just I have use feelings quotes for about everything. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this whole conversation is in is in a set of quotes. I like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I started working for an outdoor company, and I was on the product development team, and I was you know communicating with factory suppliers, and I was getting to develop outdoor gear. And you know, I grew up in an outdoor store. My sister worked for uh, an outdoor. store a local outdoor store as I was growing up. And I spent a lot of time in there and, you know, the whole family were all giant gearheads. And so <laughs> I was, I was actually getting to design and work on, you know, developing outdoor gear, camping gear. And I had been drinking when things were worse and I was struggling with school and having all these problems. And once things started to look up and start shaping up, the drinking didn't go away whatsoever. Mm. It, it kept getting worse. And that was kind of my wake up call to go back to the rock bottom phrase. I think that that's kind of a misnomer and it does a little bit of damage, honestly, because mm -hmm. I've had so many people come to me and describe their family member or their friend or whoever and say, you know, so-and-so he, he or she, they're just having a really bad go at it. They're struggling with alcohol. I think, you know, I think they just need to hit rock bottom or we need to wait until they hit rock. I don't think mm. they've hit rock bottom. I don't think they've hit rock bottom yet. I don't think they're going to change. And I think that that does damage and that it, people think that you have to get to this really, really low point to stop. Yeah. And that's not the case. And I, I didn't have anything jarring. I feel really lucky uh, in that, like I didn't get any DUIs. I didn't have any legal trouble. I didn't have any of the things that often accompany people getting sober. I actually decided, I, I, I decided that I needed to stop and I tried multiple times and I couldn't. And that was the real wake up call for me. I was like, mm. Oh, Oh crap. <laughs> like this, this is not good. And so yeah, I don't even think it was a rock bottom, really. I think it was just kind of a, a realization process that that kind of led to me realizing I needed to to get some help. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's such a good call out. And yeah, I think does you write a disservice to 
you know, the, the people who are realizing that maybe it's not serving them anymore and, and it probably never was in the first place um, and that they need to, to move on. That's such a great call. So thank you for saying that. So when you're going through this and you're trying to stop multiple times and you, you can't do it, what's next? You know, what are the next steps and that you took to fully try to go through and, and be in recovery? It was, it was a little bit of a process because especially six years ago and even now, and I can't imagine the people who, who have gone through this and were able to stop, you know, who have 40, 50 years sobriety, but but six years ago, I struggled to find anything. There, there's very little concise, helpful information that I could find online. Um, the only thing I could find was, okay, go to AA. That's what you got to do. You got to go to an AA meeting. And so I went to an AA meeting and it, I'm not a particularly religious person at this you know juncture in my life. I'm, I you know, have a lot of spiritual tendencies and a lot of uh, mindfulness techniques and a lot of practices that I do, but I'm not a religious person. And walking into AA, being hit with the religion of AA, that didn't do it for me right off the bat. Um, I needed somebody to contextualize and help me realize what I could get out of it. And so I tried AA, that didn't work. I, you know, had all sorts of excuses as to why it was stupid and it wasn't going to work. And then uh, I strung together like a couple, like two months of sobriety and then it got bad again. And then I went to AA again and had another month or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I just realized, I remember I called my, my parents and I said, I need to go somewhere. <laughs> I need to go to mm. a facility. I need to go to a facility where I physically can't access alcohol. And that's what I did. I went to a rehab uh, facility here in Missouri and there were good things and, and less good things about that whole experience. But in general, the best thing, it, it was the best thing for me at that time. And I think that it's still probably one of the best ways for people who are really struggling. Uh, if you try and you can't do it, you know, that's, that's a really good way to create the separation that's needed to, to have that those thought processes and the learning happen. That was the biggest part of it for me was uh, the facility I went to had a lot of learning. They had a lot of education style, seminar style, like kind of classes. Hmm. And so the part of me that was really interested in psychology. Yeah. Like, bring it back. To, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> went to, I went to every class. I was there early and I took notes and I learned a lot and I just, I grasped onto that. And that was my new thing that I was obsessed with, you know, learning about sobriety and alcoholism and, and the chemical, the, the things that it does to you chemically and dependency wise. And so that little bit of time to kind of, educate myself and create space was the difference maker for me. There are so many ways that people stop drinking. And so that's not the right thing for everybody, but it was the right thing at that time for me, for sure. Yeah. I need to go somewhere. I like that phrase. I think that that is also very vulnerable. Was it hard to talk to your parents or talk to your support system and ask them for help? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was it yes. was really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. Um, the thing about it though, it was hard to do it to get up the courage to do it. Once I said that, everybody who cared about me was like, 
yeah, no joke. Yeah, of course, of course you do. Like everybody's like, yeah, we know, like, let's do this. Let's, let's get better. So it wasn't a surprise to the people who knew me well. And it was the main reason that I have the sobriety that I have is because of my family and because of those people. And I'm just super grateful daily for that. So Mm. yeah, it, it, it was up until the moment, it was really hard. And then once I, once I was on my way there, honestly, I remember uh, letting everybody at my job know that was the hardest thing because it was like, Hey, I'm going to be out for a minute. And I, I sent an email telling everybody, Hey, here's what's going on. And within, I remember pressing send while I was on my way uh, to go to the rehab facility. And the second I hit send, it felt like like a giant elephant was lifted off of my, my chest. Like I, Mm. I could breathe again. And immediately within five minutes of sending it, I think there were 40 people that worked at our company at the time. I think I had 20 emails back within five minutes saying, you know, we're so happy for you get healthy, just all sorts of like really cool, supportive applies immediately. That's beautiful. Yeah. And even six years ago too, when the, you know, the stigma is becoming less and less and less, but that that's really beautiful to hear that that was the case. Even then, why is it so hard for us to ask for help? Oh, wow. It's, it's gotta be ego. I think it's gotta be the main culprit there. Like everybody feels like they have everything under control or convinces themselves or is trying to convince themselves that they have things under control. And I think, you know, everybody has their different reasons. Some people don't want to burden other people. Some people, uh, you know, it's a little more narcissistic and ego driven that, you know, they want to appear like they have everything under control for their own, you know, whatever reasons. I don't know. I, I really don't know why it's so hard. It's such a, I think we were, we were talking previously. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about Brene Brown and some of the stuff that she talks. Like, about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> her, her, her vulnerability stuff. And that's, that's gotten a lot of popularity and become more popular and been shared a lot lately. But I think that's probably part of it is it's just really hard to, to be open and honest with people and be vulnerable about things because for some reason, everybody feels like they have to have their, their stuff together all the time. And that's not reality. Nobody lives like that. Mm. It's, it's not real. Yeah. Brene says courage equals vulnerability. So Brene is, you know, she's a prophet basically. So um, she is. <laughs> she, we should listen she's, to Brene. <laughs> she's a sober, a sober prophet as well. She doesn't, yes. she doesn't drink or anything. So yeah, she's yeah. awesome. Cool. So just logistically, I feel like this is like a, uh, a hole in, in my understanding about treatment. So logistically, how does one go about like finding a center? Uh, if you're willing to share payment for this, does insurance take it? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I kind of had the same exact approach whenever I decided <laughs> I needed to go. It was like, you know, I had myself, my parents, uh, family, friends, like I had, I was not lacking for resources. I'm a really, I'm a really lucky person in life in that I have a family that loves me and that, you know, all of those, all of the people and connections in my life that I have, nobody had a good answer right out of the gate for us. So I think that that's a good question to ask because I think 
we need to keep asking and trying to figure out what the answer to that is. I just, you know, we researched facilities that were close by and had a friend of a friend who had gone to this uh, facility and said it was a good experience and recommended it. So I guess lucked out that it was, you know, mm. but yeah, the, the payment part of it, the insurance part of it, that's a frustrating thing to deal with whenever you're at, you know, a really tough juncture in, in life. And at that point, I was just going to go no matter what and figure all of that, that out later. The really frustrating part was, you know, after getting there, dealing with the insurance and realizing that they're saying, oh, yeah, no, this isn't covered. We're not going to cover this because we don't believe you have a problem because you haven't had any DUIs. You haven't had any legal issues. You haven't had any, you know, you have no documented history of this in your medical charts. You have to have at least this many instances in your medical history for us to recommend rehab. And that's such a joke. That's so, that's terrible. so horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's messed up. I don't know if that's still the way most insurances are, or the way it's approached most of the time. But um, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done with making uh, help more accessible, easily, more easily accessible. I can't imagine that it's gotten worse. I, I feel like I've, I've been seeing things that make it seem like it is getting better, but that's still probably the biggest barrier to people getting the help that they need. Yeah, that is uh, very upsetting. I didn't know that. Um, so I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. But I think, yeah, so researching friends of friends, I'm just kind of recapping what you said and then trying to understand maybe bef before you go, if you can, like what it's going to take for your insurance, what it, yada, yada. So I think too, just being aware of like you are aware in your local area, maybe this is a recommendation for folks. I, I haven't been to a treatment center, so I don't know, but you know, you're kind of aware of like where the closest hospitals are. So maybe just becoming more aware of like where the closest treatment centers are for things like this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a, a probably a good recommendation. And I think now, honestly, kind of the more I think about it and, and kind of just, just now while you were talking, it popped into my head that like, there are a lot more digital uh, resources mm -hmm. now than there were six years ago. There were no Facebook groups that I knew of when I was when I was looking six years ago, um, I know there are a lot of Facebook groups now uh, yeah. that will have recommendations and know people who have been to facilities. So I think there are probably groups online that could give you a lot of information. But yeah, I, I think that whatever the action is that you're going to take, just being able to start that action is, is the biggest part. Yeah. So now when you're thinking about your recovery, what is like the mental and if you use physical things too, but a mental toolkit that you utilize to, to help you in your recovery. I know you mentioned mindfulness and of course you have all your water sports you're going to teach me about, but, um, yeah. you know, what's kind of like your toolkit for staying healthy, staying on the, the path that you've led? Yeah, I think I think it is a combination of a lot of things, you know, mindfulness and mindfulness, specifically mindfulness meditation practice. That's been one of the biggest tools that I have used. Um, I've been doing that for, I think, four years now. So not the entire time, but for the majority of my sobriety, I've been doing uh, mindfulness meditation. That's been just incredibly helpful in not only like maintaining my sobriety and mental health, but just everything in life. It helps in literally every situation in life to be able to be mindful 
of the thoughts that are coming into your head and, and what's happening and, you know, emotions as they're happening and, you know, your, your reactions as they're happening. It's just so incredibly powerful and freeing to be able to not always, but sometimes, you know, in, in real time, be able to notice things and why things are the way they are and why you're reacting the way you're reacting. So mindfulness is for sure, uh, if not the biggest, one of the biggest things, getting outdoors, being outside, specifically the rivers. Yeah, that's my favorite. So uh, whitewater kayaking, uh, fly fishing. I really, really love fly fishing out of my drift boat. That's like, if I could choose one activity at this point in my life, that would be it. <laughs> so anything on a river. Yeah. I think that connection is probably the third leg of the tripod. They're trying to stay connected with the people in my life and life is busy and life is crazy. And I'm thinking of people right now that I owe text responses to uh, <laughs> speaking of connection, but it's hard. It's hard to stay connected to people. But um, I think that's, that's, a really important part of staying sober and, and mental health and stuff like that for me uh, yeah. is just making sure that I'm not isolating myself uh, because addicts, alcoholics, our nature, like my, my nature is to isolate myself and, and not have those connections. So staying as connected as possible is, is a big part of it. Yeah. Well, I imagine that it seems that sobriety, especially drinking, uh, not drinking is like a natural boundary maker. And there's this interesting boundary between connection, but then also what you're talking about, mindfulness, meditation, sort of like quiet, still moments on your own. So how do you navigate that? I mean, I know you're joking about like needing to respond to people and that's great, but I mean, you know, giving your time and your emotions and your energy to people, but also like making sure you're making time for meditation every day. Like how do you navigate that? balance? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. Yeah, we're solving uh, every problem <laughs> on this podcast episode. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. It's really tough to do that. I'll go days, I'll go weeks where I'm like, I haven't been doing a good job at this part of it, you know? Mm. Uh, so it's a constant, I don't want to say struggle because it's a good, it's a good struggle to have these tools, you know, but there, there is something. And, and to your point of like having the calm reflective time, that's very much needed. That's a very important part of, of it all, but also being able to step out of that and, and have conversations with family and have conversations with uh, friends and, and those sorts of things. Like it, it's a balance. You just have to make sure that you're not, you're not staying in one or the other for too long. Uh, I think the, the being alone and being okay with being alone uh, side of things is a skill that most, I don't want to say most people, I shouldn't like generalize, but many people don't ever develop that skill of being able to sit quietly with, with themselves and with their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And the mindfulness part of it is, has been really helpful for me, but also in my previous job, I did a lot of travel. So I was doing a lot of solo travel to our, our factories in, in Asia. And so I would spend a lot of time in hotel rooms by myself or on 16 hour flights and long travel days by myself. And I think that I really, I, Looking back at that, because I don't travel quite as much for this new position that I'm at, looking back at all that travel that I did and the amount of time I had to sit with my own thoughts, um, I don't think I fully appreciated that for, for what it did for me mentally. You know, it mm -hmm. really made me... I remember 
specifically, like I remember every time I would come back from a trip, I'd be gone for like maybe a month at a time. Uh, and when, yeah, yeah. And I would be in like Hong Kong and Bangladesh. So it's totally different culture, like completely. I mean, everybody's the same people are people, but just culturally, it was a really big city. Uh, Hong Kong's really big, uh, Chittagong, the city that I spent my time in in Bangladesh is a really big bustling, you know, busy place. And I would be there and I would be in a hotel room in the evening, you know, by myself having a lot of time, you know, to sit with my own thoughts. And I would be over there for a month or a little over a month and come home. And the second I got home after I got over the jet lag, I was the most annoying friend in the world to all my friends back in St. Louis, because I was like, we're going to do this. And then Thursday, we're going to go do this. And then Friday, we're doing this. And so it was almost like polar opposites of like being, you know, I had a lot of good interactions and friends in, in Bangladesh. But being able to come home after having all that time kind of by myself, it, it was like overload on the connection side of things <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, so the pendulum uh, swings basically. Yeah. 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 It's just got to keep it as imbalanced as you can, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask you a really deep question. Ready? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> what I, is... I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm leaving. It's so weird. John hung up. So strange. Um, What does water mean to you? I would say that the thing that I like the most about water and what it means, what it means to me is it means everything to me. I I know that's a, a big statement, but water specifically moving water. You know, I think you can look at water in so many ways. Water like is the most necessary thing for life and all those sorts of big, heavy kind of things. But when you look at just specifically moving water, my favorite thing about it is the activities that I do on moving water, fly fishing, whitewater kayaking, canoeing, float trips, those activities demand your attention. You have to give them your attention if you want to be successful in what you're doing. And to give moving water your attention is is like the ultimate, like mindful, zen, overwhelming, like in overwhelming in a good way kind of feeling, right? Mm. Like you have to be there. You have to be paying attention. Water is so powerful. It's so impressive. And to be successful in any of those activities, you have to be paying attention to the water and, and it just takes you out of anything else that you might be in, in your head. So I would say that's, that's what I love about it the most and what it does for me. That's beautiful. I often, if I only have like 20 minutes during a day that I can't work out, I can't do anything else. And I just need to like take in some sort of nature. I just literally go down the bike path and there's a tiny little Creek and it just has this like almost like dripping water. It's not even like really rushing or anything, but I'm, that's what I go and look at if I'm trying to like get a nature fix for the day, but I just don't have time to like go do, you know, a long run. And there's a lot yeah. of science behind that. And it, you can feel it when you, even you're just looking at it or I've never been on rushing water. So I'll let you guide me in doing that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but that's a good maybe activity for people who are, who are looking to get out of their own head and and into something bigger. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, there are a lot of programs that take people fly fishing or take people, 
kayaking or, or canoeing or rafting all sorts of I know there are a lot of like veterans programs for for veterans who are coming home from war or you know there are a lot of uh, like groups for cancer support groups mm. that go fishing it, it, there's a uniting obviously like overwhelmingly powerful thing about moving water yeah mm-hmm. just this the sound alone <laughs> is yeah. enough to do it I think yeah. What are you currently reading or listening to? Oh, that's a good question. Um, another good question, believe it or not. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately. Uh, so I, I've been doing a lot of uh, meditation style podcasts, uh, a lot of stuff for work. But like, I really like uh, On Being as a podcast. 10% happier um, is some kind of a meditation focus uh, podcast. So I, I'm doing a lot of podcasts and then I'm kind of shuffling in between several meditation themed books that I'm trying to finish and then some stuff for work. I'm always kind of looking at, at kind of marketing and, and those sorts of, of things for work. So I'd yeah. say it's a hodge, a hodgepodge at this point. Cool. Well, um, I wanted to do something a little bit unorthodox, but I was going through as I do your, your Instagram before we talked today. And I looked at your five years sober post and what you wrote about that. And I wanted to read something to you that you wrote and then see, uh, what kind of things do you think of when you hear that? So, uh, John writes, it's been five years since I've had a drink. And during the worst of my alcoholic spiral, I would never believed a sober lifestyle could be possible for me. It's real though. And through sobriety, I've seen unimaginable positive changes in growth in my life. You know, one of the last questions I want to ask you anyways, and this kind of leads into it is like for someone who thinks it's unimaginable right now, or thinks that this is never going to be possible for them who might be listening, what would be the, the first piece of advice that you would give them? Yeah, that's, that's really, you know, a good, a really good final question to go out on. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I would say it would be twofold in that. Firstly, I would say it gets better. If you want it to get better and you put the work in, it can get better. It, it really can get better. So know that. The other thing I would say is I remember very vividly and specifically how overwhelming it felt when I was thinking about this, trying to stop. It feels like soul crushingly overwhelming to think mm-hmm. about it. And the big reason for that, at least for me and my experience was that your brain automatically goes to, oh, so you mean you mean five years down the road? What if, what if I get married? I can't even have a drink at my wedding. What if I, what if this happens? I can't even have a drink. Like, what if that happens 10 years from now and I can't have a drink like 10 years from now for this? Like that's for some reason, that's where most people's or a lot of people's brains go immediately is you start thinking about forever without drinking. Mm -hmm. And that's not a helpful way to approach it whatsoever. And it's not realistic either because all you have to do is look at the next day and it's, it's, you know, an an age old, you know, adage and AA and it's become like, you know, a pretty well-known saying the one day at a time thing that applies to a lot of things, or you can apply it to a lot of things, but it's probably the most true part And one of the most valuable things I took from AA was, you know, they have a lot of sayings that are really true. And one day at a time being one of the most important, you don't have to worry about 
you know, next week, even you don't have to worry about that event at the end of the month that you're stressed out about. You literally just don't have to drink today. And that's it. And then you wake up and you try to do the same thing again tomorrow. But it's, it's literally just taking it one step at a time. The best analogy for me, and I was talking to a buddy who is a whitewater kayaker as well about this, and he's also sober. It's like in whitewater, whenever you're looking at, at a rapid that feels big, but you think you can run it, you're dissecting it and picking your line out by, you know, looking at what's the first eddy I can get to. And, you know, for those of you who don't, aren't familiar with water the eddy is right behind so you know a rock like. or something in the river and yeah 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 yeah. i could see i could see the, the i was like the i question. know what it, i know what that one is i've gotten stuck in one okay so so, so behind a gravel bar sure there's an eddy there's an eddy yeah uh, but what when you look at a rapid that's how you break it down you say look i can make it to that first eddy and if things are, go downhill from there i can get out at that eddy, I can take my boat and put it on my shoulder and walk as long as I know I can safely get to that first eddy. Once you're in the first eddy, you start to look for the next eddy that you know you can get to safely. And that's how you break apart a rapid. Um, mm. And I think that there's a really good analogy for anything you want to accomplish that feels overwhelming, but specifically not drinking. It's okay. I don't have to worry about three days down the road or three eddies down the line. I just have to figure out how to get today. And then I'll worry about the rest of it once I'm, once I'm done with that. So that would be how I, I would, and not how I would, I do tell people that because that's another thing about it is whenever you do have some sobriety and you are, are open about it, people start crawling out of the woodwork to ask for help because so many more people struggle with it than you would ever imagine. People do come to me frequently and ask and and that's, those are my two main pieces of advice that I feel like are, are the most immediately uh, helpful. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So if people do want to uh, maybe not flood your DMs, but stay in contact, follow yeah, along yeah. with what you're doing, where can they check in with you? Is Instagram the best place? Yeah. Yeah. I think probably Instagram, honestly, uh, just my name, John Holdmeyer. Yeah. Instagram would be the best, I think. And I do have people that I have, uh, not a lot, but I've had several people who I have never met in real life reach out just through Instagram. And I don't have the, all the answers or all the solutions and I can't make it any easier for anybody, but I am happy to give you any resources that I do have or just listen, you know? Mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. Well, thank you, John, so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's It's been awesome. And I just want to say thank you for starting this whole thing. I think this is much needed. And uh, I'm just really, really excited to see, watch this grow and and, and be able to be a, a little part of it. It's It's really cool. So thank you. What a fantastic episode with John today. John is just a really warm human being, and it's just such a pleasure to be able to chat with him for this podcast. I think the thing that really stuck with me about John's episode was that he talked about examples, setting examples out loud and in the public sphere for other people who are potentially interested in this type of life or needing support or whatever it may be. And that you can't really force 
someone to go down this path if they don't feel like they're ready or it's just not necessarily, they're not at the right place yet to do it. And maybe they never will be, but to just show that you can live a full life, you know, that can be helpful to other people even if you don't know that it's, that it's helping them. And I think that's really powerful and and not just for sobriety, but for all aspects of life for, you know, healthier uh, eating or even working out or going outside or just any of the good practices that you have in your life to show them and, and show that you're doing them. And that doesn't need to mean like on social media, but just you yourself using your identity in that way to help others. I think that was really powerful. A couple of recommendations that he made on the podcast, and this will be in the show notes as well. Um, he gave two podcast recommendations. So on being and 10% happier. I'm excited to listen to those and you can catch up with John at John Holdmeyer on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And I say we, but really it's just me guys. It's, it's me in my dark (laughs) room recording this. And I just really appreciate you sticking with me and supporting this show that I think is, is really important. I'm excited about all that we can do together. So if you like the show, follow us on Instagram, join the Facebook group and leave a review on iTunes. That's always very helpful. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.